Ephesians chapter 4. We find the fourth chapter of Ephesians. We've been taking it kind of slowly through these first few verses of the fourth chapter. And that's because what we're learning here are just some really far-reaching concepts. Uh, Paul is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity in these few verses that we've discussed over the past few weeks. And if you have figured out exactly how the Trinity works, would you please come tell me? Uh, I would like to know that. But what I've attempted to do is just try to explain a little bit about what I know. But when I think about God being uh, one God and yet being three distinct persons, all equal, all divine, all powerful, and still yet one God, that just throws my mind into a spin. I, I really can't think on that level. and I don't think anybody can. But here in uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us some information the explanation of the Godhead, of course, defies a full, it defies human explanation, and we couldn't give a full explanation. But there are some things in the scriptures that God has revealed to us about Himself, and I believe it's our duty to learn those things. We're to study the Word of God and find out as much about this as we can know. Well, Paul gives us uh, three thoughts about the Trinity in uh, the three verses that we've been studying, but all of this builds up to the revelation of the one true God. Now, when we think about God, most Christians think about him in a very generic sense. Uh, we think about God, of course, we think about Jesus Christ. And, well, we should think about Christ because, of course, he is our Savior. And he's probably the person of the Godhead that we do think the most about. We also think about the Holy Spirit, and we talk about him. And he's very important to us because the Holy Spirit is the, really the presence of, of Jesus Christ living within us. And the Holy Spirit, of course, leads us in our daily walk with God. But one thing that we don't say very much about is about God the Father. And even if you read things about the Trinity, you find much less written about God the Father than you do on either the Son or the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, in these verses, has given us a reverse order when he mentions the three persons of the Godhead. And in that song we just sang, you'll notice that it started out with God the Father... Then the second verse went to the Son, the third went to the Holy Spirit, and then the fourth, uh, fourth verse talked about the Trinity all being one. But here Paul takes a different approach. He goes at it backwards. And the reason that he does this is he starts off with the Spirit who willingly subordinated himself to the Son. And then he talks about the Son who willingly subordinated himself to the work of the Father. And then it all brings us back to God the Father himself. So he reverses the order from the normal, where we usually see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In these verses, we see, we see the Holy Spirit, then the Son, and then the Father. So let's take just a moment to read these verses once again. If you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read three verses, 4, 5, and 6. But we're going to concentrate, of course, on verse number 6 this evening. Paul writes, There is one body... And one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just ask you that you might help us tonight in understanding the word. I ask you, Lord, that you might reveal to us the things you'd have us to know. And even though we're on difficult subjects and sometimes hard to explain and hard to understand... We just ask you, Lord, you'd open our minds to where we can learn more about you. I ask you, Lord, for strength to preach the message tonight, make it clear, help everyone to understand, and we'll just give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
The statement, there is one God, would probably have meant far much, far, far more to the Ephesian Christians than it does to us today. In our society, we're raised to uh, believe that there is only one God. Uh, most of us would consider our nation, at least somewhat, to be a Christian nation. And so just about all of us have been raised with that concept, there is only one God. If you were to go out to, uh, on the streets and speak to people and try to convince them that we really need to serve a multiplicity of gods, that there are more gods that we should serve, that I would say that you wouldn't find much of an audience for that. Most people probably wouldn't agree with you because they understand that there is only one God. But if you go back to the time that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, uh, this is a very much different situation. Because here are people that would find it difficult to believe that there's only one God. They lived in a society and, and, and under a, the, the type of religion in which there were all kinds of gods, multiple gods, and they worshipped all of these different gods. And every time that Paul went out to preach to these different kinds of people, they were having difficulty rationalizing what he was saying and believing that there is only one God. I'm always reminded when I think about this of the, of the trip that Paul made to Athens. We find that in Acts chapter 17, if you want to read that a little bit later, but Paul, when he went to Athens, he rounded, uh, he stepped into the Agora or the marketplace. He rounded the corner there on Mars Hill at the Areopagus. And before him were hundreds and hundreds of idols. There were <clears throat> idols to just about every god imaginable. And one particular uh, altar there caught Paul's attention especially because this was labeled to the unknown god. And there actually wasn't an idol there, I don't think, because the people didn't know who this god was. <coughs> and so they were worshiping all of these different gods. And they came, uh, Paul came across this one that the people thought that, well, there must be a god that we've left out. And so they made an altar to an unknown god. Well, the Ephesians, the Athenians, the Corinthians, all of these people, they were stunned by any teaching that said that there was only one god. And Paul, when he was on Mars Hill, in the story I'm just talking about, he used this uh, rampant superstition that the people had there in Athens to teach them about this one God that they didn't know anything about. And he told them that this one God was the true God, and he wasn't a God to be worshipped with men's hands, but he's the God who created everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians are dedicated to the declaration of one God. And what Paul does here is to uh, bring the whole matter of salvation and the whole matter of the world's purpose, the entire purpose of why we're here, all back to the one God. And this evening, I want to talk about the one and only God. Of course, I've already preached about the one and only Spirit and the one and only Lord. And so tonight, we're going to talk about the one and only God. And we're going to see here why Paul reversed the order, not to end in the Holy Spirit, not to end in the Son, Jesus Christ, but to end this in God himself. Now, first of all, this evening, I want to show you that God planned it all. If you take uh, time to think about this and you, you think about everything that happens in the world, to arrive at the truth of, of why we are here and, and what this is all about, you have to realize that God planned it all. Now, today... Our children are taught in our schools that everything that we see around us is nothing but random chance happenings. All that we have in the world today came about as a, a big cosmic explosion. 
Everything in the universe was compacted into one little tiny ball. And when it could no longer contain itself, this little ball exploded. And out came a multitude of different things. By a twist of fate, everything is the way that it is right now. <coughs> in our, and everything that we see around us was really an accident. An accident that happened on the way to the universe. Scientists tell us that one time there was this speck of matter no bigger than a pinhead, and everything was compacted into that. Then on the day that it exploded, out came tadpoles, crocodiles, monkeys, and men. Well, you know I've shortened up the time cycle just a little bit there, but the ultimate effect of it's exactly the same. It's all random, and there really isn't any reason, rhyme or reason, for why we are here. Well, you know, when I think about that, it, it's no wonder that people who believe like that end up being in total despair. Because if you came from nothing, that means you are nothing and you're going nowhere. You know, I wish that someone could explain to me how that we could ever value human life if we believe that human life just ceases to exist. There's no reason for it to be here and just passes out of existence for no reason. Then why does human life have any value at all? And so for people to believe things like that, that has never satisfied man. Man will never be happy believing like that because it leaves him always searching and yet he never finds. And so godlessness, that's not a way to live a happy life. But here, when you finally come to the realization that God made it all, everything changes. When you see that God planned it all, it all changes for you. And now you see some worth not only in man himself, but in all of creation that God has done because such a great God has planned it all. If you go back to the Old Testament, it was, it was always a belief in, in one God that brought happiness to the people. When the children of Israel were living in, in Egypt, when they were in bondage in Egypt, they were reminded many times of the uh, uh, fickleness uh, of the Egyptian gods. I mean, if there is more than one God, then that means that there has to be more than one will. And if there is more than one will then there is no promise that God could ever make that would be accurate, none that would be steadfast, no promises could be sure if there's a multiplicity of wills. But the children of Israel discovered that there's only one God, and that meant that his promises must be sure, they must be steadfast. There is one will in God, and God always accomplishes his purposes. And so this is why uh, Moses could say in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. If you ever wanted to find a statement, on, a very concise statement about monotheism, there's your statement. If there is one God, then he only has one will. And that means that all of his plans and purposes must work according to his will. Now I want to point out to you this evening two important facets of God's plan. You see, when God created the world, there weren't any consultations. He never asked anybody what he should do. But first of all, God just did everything according to his own purpose. And of course, God's purpose, first and foremost, is to glorify himself. 
And so when, anybody, when anyone comes to me and they ask me the question, why are things this way? Why are things that way? Why is it that God created human beings in the first place? And why is it that God doesn't save everybody? Well, the best answer, the ultimate answer for that question is always, it's for the glory of God. Everything that God did is for his own glory. And so there are thousands of questions that can be asked, but ultimately it always comes back to that. It's for God's glory. Whatever God does, it will promote his glory. But then while we understand that these things are ultimately for God's glory, there are parts of God's plan that he's let us know something about. He has explained some things to us, and he's told us how these things work. And salvation is one of those things. As far as you and I are concerned, salvation is the most important part of God's plan. And God has told us something about salvation. And really, folks, the only place that you'll ever go to find out God's plan of salvation is to go to the Bible itself. And that's to read what God said about it. But when we come to the idea of salvation, if there's anything that's more ignored than God's word, then I don't know what it is. And I say it's ignored because men have decided that they have their own plan of salvation. They have a way that they want to get to heaven, and they're determined that they're going to go that way. Now, there's another thing that I need to explain to me, because it's a deep, deep mystery to me how a man could ever think that he has the right to decide what the plan of salvation would be or how he could get to God. Only God can tell you what that is. But men are convinced that the purpose of God has to be centered on them. That whatever God does, man is the focus of everything God does. But folks, that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach us that man is the focus of salvation. God himself is the focus of salvation. And it was God's purpose as he revealed Christ to us that he would tell us something about himself. And that's exactly what he did through Christ. Now, I've already covered that somewhat if you remember the sermon on the one and only one Lord. So I'm not going to detail it all here. But God sent Jesus Christ into the world for this purpose and that was to reveal the Father to us. So we'd know something about him. Now, on Sunday morning, I read a couple of verses from the Gospel of John. We'll read those again. John 1.14, John wrote, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he writes in the 18th verse, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, for... God to plan for Jesus to come and give us salvation was to show us that he wanted us to learn something about him. Now, of course, not everybody, not everybody knows the Father and not everybody understands the revelation of the Father. The only people who understand who God really is are those who have put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has revealed himself to them through Jesus And when we talk about God's plan and purpose, I think a natural question for us to ask is when did God decide to do all of this? When did God make this plan? Well, the scriptures are very clear about that as well. And that is the plan that God made was decided before he ever created the world. Before any person was ever born, before the first thing that was ever made, God had a plan. He told us about that in Ephesians 1 verse 4. It says, According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then he stated essentially the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. There Paul said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you, 
unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And then Jesus also made it very clear when the decision was made. He made it clear to us which people were involved in the decision. And then he also told us how this would be implemented, how God's plan and purpose would be carried out. And we find this in John chapter 17. In the first five verses there, it says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so this work of redemption... This was Christ's commission that was given before creation and the people that were given to Christ for him to redeem were known to Christ before the world was ever created. Before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth, he knew exactly who he was coming to save. So this is God's purpose. But God never intended that all of this would end with Christ. No, the purpose of God's salvation is finally to bring us to the Father. God's salvation is to bring us from where we are to where God is. And so we don't end up just in this life here on this wor- in this world. We end up with the Heavenly Father, and that's Christ's goal and His purpose. So if Christ intended to bring us to the Father, and He doesn't actually accomplish that goal, then it can't be said that He glorified the Father. Because doing the work that God gave Him to do is where God the Father receives His glory. So Jesus had to accomplish everything that he set out to do. Now, this is a very important thing for us to understand because this helps us really comprehend why why there was an election before the foundation of the world. Every step along the way, from election in eternity past to the redemption price that Christ would pay to the calling of God's elect, to the justification of these people, to the salvation of God's elect, was all to ensure that God would be glorified. And the reason I say that is because any kind of other plan, any mumbled up, jumbled type of plan that doesn't completely accomplish the purpose that Christ came to do would not bring glory to God. In fact, any plan that's haphazard so that it ends up where it may or may not result in the salvation of any particular person Do you understand that's really no better than a Big Bang Theory? The Big Bang Theory is that particles were thrown out into space and they end up where they are for who knows why. And the same would be true if God didn't have a plan and purpose and who is about to save. Because he would have sent Jesus into the world not knowing whether anyone would be saved. Because he doesn't know any particular person and so therefore God wouldn't be glorified. There's no assurance of anything. Well, thank the Lord for this. He has a purpose. And the purpose is we will be brought to God and his purpose won't fail. Now, secondly, I want you to notice that this plan was according to his pleasure. If you ask the question, why did God do it all? He did it because he wanted to. That's the best answer I can give you. He did it just because he wanted to. Now, whatever God does, of course, is always consistent with his character. God's kind, he's benevolent, he's just. He's holy and he's righteous. 
And so if God ever did anything, it will always be according to that character. It would perfectly match what God is. Now, the scriptures simply say this in Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, listen, according to the good pleasure of his will. In Philippians 2.13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know what that means? It means that God doesn't ask you what you think. God didn't ask me what I thought about it. He didn't say, now you figure out what's best and then I'm going to alter my plans according to what you think is best. But do you realize, folks, that that's what most people believe about salvation? Good Baptist people believe that very thing about their salvation. If you remember, I quoted from a a book that was written from one of the teachers in one of the colleges that we support. I'll paraphrase what he said, but he said, God has done all for you that he can do, and so now it's up to you. And so in other words, God's will to save you is not greater than your will to receive him or to reject him. And so ultimately, who decides salvation? You do. Salvation's taken out of God's hands. And so it depends on what you think and what you do. And I have heard this so many, many times that people will get up into pulpits and preach, God wants to save you, but he won't save you unless you let him. Do you know that's impossible to reconcile that kind of thinking with what we just read? It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it can never come down to God wants to do something, but you won't let him. God does exactly what he wants to do. So it's not possible to reconcile those kinds of things. And I think it very clearly goes against what the Bible says to make those kinds of statements. And so when Paul writes, one God and Father of all who is above all, I'm afraid that he has a much different picture of God than most of our Baptist people do. But let me go on because I want to address the next phrase in this trilogy, and that is God's presence is in all. And I'm going to be brief here and try to move on quickly with this. God's presence is in all. But that statement most definitely needs an explanation. I do not mean when Paul says God, one God and Father of all, that he teaches us that every person has God as his Father. That's not Paul's teaching. Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians, says father of all. But I want you to notice that he is not the father of all. Now you say, now wait just a minute, Pastor. You always talk about reading the Bible just as it's written. So how can you say that father of all does not mean father of all? Context. Context is always important when we interpret Scripture. And once again, we remember that Paul's writing to the Ephesian Christians, and some just simply don't want to take that, take that into the context. And so they will tell you, and they'll take scriptures like this to teach the universal fatherhood of God. And they say, well, we're all one big happy family, and God is the father of all. Well, in a sense, that would be true because God created the world. He certainly is the father of all humanity in that sense. And Paul said that in Acts chapter 17. He was preaching on Mars Hill when I was just talking about a moment ago. And he said in the 29th verse, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, 
We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And so this statement that Paul makes is not made because of a universal relationship that we have with God, but because of universal subservience to God. God's the one who created us, and God is the one who controls us, so in that sense, he may be our father. But one thing we need to very clearly understand, that God is not the father of all in relationship. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, the only thing that we need to do, the best place to go with this, is to go ask the person who knows more about it than anybody. Go ask somebody who's in a relationship with God, and who would that be? What about the father-son relationship? So what does Jesus say about God being the father of all? Well, listen to what he says in John chapter 8. He says, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus said, God is not your father. And if he were your father, you would love me. Now, if Jesus can say, God is not your father, then there are some people who do not have God as their father. That makes sense? So therefore, the conclusion is, God is not the father of all. And so there is no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God, which also means there's no such thing as the universal brotherhood of man. So we clarify this statement by putting it this way. He is the father of us all. Now, the end of verse number six, you'll notice there says, and in you all. And really, this is the whole point that he's making. Those who are unified by the Spirit and brought to salvation through the redemptive work of Christ are the children of the Father. Now, I want you to get this because this is really important. All of these were always the children of the Father. Now, I don't mean that they were always saved because they weren't. Ephesians chapter two makes that clear in verse number three. Among among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so we were, all of us at one time, children of wrath, but we still belong to the Father. You see, our salvation did not come about in eternity past. It didn't come about when we were elected to salvation. It comes, it comes about in time, but we still belong to the Father. Now, now, how do I know that these particular people belong to the Father? And all the way back before the foundation of the world, they always belong to the Father. Well, Jesus said that too. First of all, he talks about sheep. He said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Just two chapters before that statement, he made the one that I read just a moment ago when he was talking to the Pharisees and those people that didn't believe him. He said, you are of your father, the devil. They didn't have God as their father. But then in the 26th verse, just before the one I just read, in John 10, 26, it says, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Now, it looks to me like there is a relationship between being a sheep and being a child of the father. Do you see what I'm saying? Back in the previous chapter, he said, 
you don't believe me because your father's the devil. And then in chapter 10, he says, you don't believe me because you're not of my sheep. And so these people that Jesus were talking to were never children of the father. And so God has his own people that he's chosen. Now let's go back to the verses that we read earlier because this will help us to understand what Jesus said in John 17. I want you to turn your Bible there, if you would, to John 17 and verse number 1. I read this just a moment ago, but now we're going to put a little explanation to it so we can see this a little bit clearly, what's Jesus talking about in John 17. And let me remind you again that John 17 is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what we normally call the real Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. So if you look here in verse number 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. Now that's everybody in the world. He has power over all flesh. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now that's not everybody in the world. That's very clearly those who have been given to Jesus. And in other words, these are the sheep. Verse number three. And this is life eternal that they, that's the sheep, might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had before thee or I had with thee before the world was. Now, here, here's the way this is. If you are a saved, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, a blood-bought believer, you are so because you are one of the sheep that was given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. God is your Father, and God is the Father of us all who have been chosen. Well, now we go back to Ephesians, and we can read Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, interpreted by Ephesians 4, verse 6. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then verse 6, our text, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That sounds like exactly what I just said. Chosen by God, the sheep are chosen by God, and those that are chosen are predestined to be the children of Jesus Christ. And that's why they're saved. And that's why Jesus could call them my sheep, and they follow me, they hear me, and they follow me. And Jesus said, of course, I and my Father are one. So it all comes back to the purpose. Jesus came to reveal the Father to his children. Now the question that I would have is, why would anybody want to deny that? I mean, why, why is that doctrine so hated? I mean, you, if you think about it, doesn't it make you love God more to know that he had you specially in mind before he ever created you? Doesn't it make you love God more to know that when Jesus went to the cross that he specifically had you on his mind? And doesn't it make you love God more that you know that Jesus suffered and died on the cross personally for you in order that he might bring you to God? You know, what comfort is there if you believe that, that Christ died haphazardly? He died haphazardly for people who may or may not ever believe in him. Could you have comfort in that? You know, that's a plan that's full of holes, folks. What, what would Jesus say to the Father if, if 
he was theologically like some of our Baptist brothers, what would he say? He would say, well, Father, I tried. I tried everything that I could do. I performed miracles. I tried to convince them. I preached to them. I went to the cross for them. I did everything I could do for them. But it wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. They still wouldn't believe in me. So, Father, please forgive me. Because I failed, I couldn't save them. Is that what Jesus said? Ouch. No, he didn't. He said in John 17, 4, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Finished. Complete. Job well done. Everybody that he came to save, none is lost. Not one single solitary soul. Everybody, every single person that Jesus came to save will be saved. Anything else, folks, is failure. So you might believe in a haphazard Christ. I believe in a Christ who said, mission accomplished. It's finished. I did it all. Now, I'm just about out of time here. I I couldn't do this subject justice if I preached a million sermons on this. But let me give you quickly just another point. And that is that God's providence is over all. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now as we read that, we see that in one sense, whether you're saved or you're lost, you live under the providence of God. God's providence is over you. And what Jesus is saying here is that an evil farmer, one who's not a believer in God, he receives rain on his crops just like a person who's a believer in Jesus Christ. They all receive rain. And so God's providence is over all. But if we stop with that and we just say, well, God's providence is over all, that wouldn't give us very much comfort because then we would think that we live in this world just like a lost person does. That God doesn't treat us any differently than he does somebody who hates him. Well, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know better than that. If you get saved and you can't tell the difference in your relationship with God now from when you were not saved from before, then you didn't get saved. The relationship changes and God begins to show you his grace and his mercy and his providence abundantly in many different ways. And that's all reserved for those who are children of the Father. Now, three observations on this and we'll be through. First, he extends mercy to sinners. Now, a moment ago, I said that that before we were saved, we were the children of wrath. And as children of wrath, what do we deserve? We deserve nothing. We deserve to go to hell. Nothing but the fires of hell is what any person deserves. So there's not anybody here tonight, after all that I preach, that now you're going to go home or you're going to go to your friend and stick out your check, your chest rather, and say, hey, I'm one of God's elect. And you're not going to go to somebody and say, I'm one of God's elect and you're not. And you know why you can't say that? Let me tell you why. Precisely because of the way God planned this all out. It was all planned before the foundation of the world and you had no say in it whatsoever. And so what right would you ever have to go tell somebody, I'm elect and you're not? First of all, you don't know that. You are a sinner headed for hell and God in his mercy stopped your headlong plunge. 
you were going to hell and God stopped you. Now, do you understand, folks, that this is what election is really all about? Election is not about sending people to hell. Election is about some people going to heaven. Everybody's already on their way to hell. You know how many times, I can't even count the number of times that I've heard people say this. That preacher over there at Berean Baptist Church, he believes that God sent people to hell before they were ever born. I've never said that. I've never preached it. I don't believe it. I believe everybody's on their way to hell. Every single person. And God, in his mercy, saves some. In Luke 18, the man cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, let me tell you what I know about who is and who is not going to heaven. I'm going to tell you everything I know about it. Here it is. Everybody who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is going to heaven. Simple as I can put it. Anybody who cries out to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, save me. That person's going to heaven. And all those people who do that are God's elect. And they're going to heaven. So you ever meet up with anybody and they want to know, are you one of God's elect? You just ask them one question. Do you believe that Jesus died to save you from your sins? Do you believe that he'll take you to heaven when you die? And if they say yes, then I'd say, hey, you're one of God's elect. No, no pride, no boasting in that. You simply believe, and that means you're one of God's elect. Now, the second thing, he energizes the saved. He extends mercy to sinners, and he energizes the saved. Now, you see, here's the reason why that as God's people, we can live in this world. We can be happy. We live fulfilled lives here. And that's because of the power of God. It's the energy that God gives us. You wonder why Christians just don't give it up? I mean... I'm going to preach on this in a few weeks, but from John chapter 15, when Jesus told the disciples, he said, the world's going to hate you, fellas. It hated me before they hated you. Don't expect anything else. The world will hate you. And just before that, in John 14, verse 1, you remember he said, let not your heart be troubled. A few minutes later, he says, they're going to hate you. How do you do that? How does a Christian do that? There's only one way. The power of God energizes us. He energizes the saved. That's why we don't go out and shoot ourselves in the head. I mean, if you knew that, believed, and you know that the world hates you, everybody that you come in contact with, they hate you because you're a child of God. When they find out about it, they'll hate you. Why don't you kill yourself? Because God gives you the strength to live here. Just go back to Paul's statement in Ephesians 3, a great statement he makes. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. So there's plenty of power, plenty of energy to go around. Here's the last one. Thirdly, he exalts the saints. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. And verse number one of of this chapter tells us that he was in prison. And some think that there was more than one prison term for Paul. They think that Possibly he had a second prison sentence and that would have ended in his death. Well, if that's true, then what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy are some of the last words that he ever penned. He said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love is appearing." Now, I'll say this 
again, I've said it already, God's purpose was not to end all things in Christ. The purpose of Christ's work is to bring us to God. That's to get us from the world that we're living in to the place where God lives. And we could put it this way, it's Christ's intention to bring us face to face with God. Now, I don't have time to really go into that subject, <coughs> but it's something we need to think about. What does that mean, to be face to face with God? Because the Bible says that God is a spirit. You can't see a spirit. But what about Jesus? Jesus has an eternal body. The human body that he came into into this world, when he took on a human body, he kept that human body. And now that human body is glorified. And remember the scripture we read on Sunday when the angel said, this same Jesus is coming back? He still has that glorified body. So how are we going to see God? Well, actually, we're going to see God how? In the face of Jesus Christ. And you know, that's exactly what Paul said. Paul, Paul knew a lot about eternity past and eternity future. Seems to know more than anybody on this subject. But he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath... For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we know God? How do we see God? By our relationship with Jesus Christ. So I don't know what to say about it. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's one and only one God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to preach your word. And Lord, uh, some things that we talk about are hard for us to understand. But we know that all things are committed to you and you've done all things well. You planned and you purposed it. And Lord, we're just thankful that you've made us a part of your plan. Nothing that we can boast of. We can't be proud of anything. We can just only give, give praise and honor and glory to you because you have chosen us to be your children and Lord, may we give that message to other people because they will never come to know you unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless in this invitation tonight and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.